Section 3 of the Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nissa Schmidt. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section 3. The Boreal left St. Catherine's Docks in beautiful weather on the afternoon of the 19th June, full of good hope, bound for the pole. All about the docks was one region of heads stretched far in innumerable vagueness, and down the river to Woolwich a continuous dull roar and murmur of bees droned from both banks to cheer our departure. The expedition was partly a national affair, subvented by government and if ever ship was well found it was the boreal she had a frame tougher far than any battleships capable of ramming some ten yards of drift ice and she was stuffed with sufficient pemmican codro fish meal and so on to last us not less than six years we were seventeen all told the five heads so to speak of the undertaking being clark our chief john mew commander Aubrey Maitland, meteorologist, Wilson, electrician, and myself, doctor, botanist, and assistant meteorologist. The idea was to get as far east as the 100 degree or the 120 degree of longitude, to catch there the northern current, to push and drift our way northward, and when the ship could no further penetrate, to leave her, either three or else four of us on ski, and with sledges drawn by dogs and reindeer make a dash for the pole this had also been the plan of the last expedition that of the nix and of several others the boreal only differed from the nix and others in that she was a thing of nicer design and of more exquisite forethought our voyage was without incident up to the end of july when we encountered a drift of ice floes on the first august we were at Kabarova where we met our coal ship and took in a little coal for emergency, liquid air being our proper motor. Also, forty-three dogs, four reindeer, and a quantity of reindeer moss. And two days later, we turned our bows finally northward and eastward, passing through heavy slack ice under sail and liquid air in crisp weather, till on the 27th August, we lay moored to a floe off the desolate island of Tamar. The first thing which we saw here was a bear on the shore, watching for young whitefish, and promptly Clark, Mew, and Lamburn, engineer, went on shore in the launch, I and Maitland following in the pram, each party with three dogs. It was while climbing away inland that Maitland said to me, When Clark leaves the ship for the dash to the pole, it is three, not two of us, after all, that he is going to take with him, making a party of four i is that so who knows maitland wilson does clark has let it out in conversation with wilson i well the more the merrier who will be the three maitland wilson is sure to be in it and there may be mew making the third as to the fourth i suppose i shall get left out in the cold i more likely i maitland well the race is between us four wilson mew you and i it is a question of physical fitness combined with special knowledge you are too lucky a dog to get left out jeffson i 
well what does it matter so long as the expedition as a whole is successful that is the main thing maitland oh yes that is all very fine talk jeffson but is it quite sincere isn't it rather opposed to affect to despise one hundred and seventy-five million dollars i want to be in it to death and i meant to be if i can we are all more or less self-interested look i whispered a bear it was a mother and a cub and with determined trudge she came wagging her low head having no doubt smelled the dogs we separated on the instant doubling different ways behind ice boulders wanting her to go on nearer the shore before killing but passing close she spied and bore down at a trot upon me i fired into her neck and at once with a roar she turned tail making now straight in maitland's direction i saw him run out from cover some hundred yards away aiming his long gun but no report followed and in half a minute he was under her forepaws she striking out slaps at the barking shrinking dogs maitland roared for my help and at that moment i poor wretch in far worse plight than he stood shivering an egg for suddenly one of those wrangles of the voices of my destiny was filling my bosom with loud commotion one urging me to fly to maitland's aid one passionately commanding me to be still but it lasted i believe some seconds only i ran and got a shot into the bear's brain and maitland leapt up with a rent down his face but singular destiny whatever i did if i did evil if i did good the result was the same tragedy dark and sinister poor maitland was doomed that voyage and my rescue of his life was the means employed to make his death the more certain i think that i have already written some pages back about a man called scotland whom i met at cambridge he was always talking about certain black and white beings and their contention for the earth we others used to call him the black and white mystery man because one day but that is no matter now well with regard to all that i have a fancy a whim of the mind quite wide of the truth no doubt but i have it here in my brain and i will write it down now it is this that there may have been some sort of arrangement or understanding between the black and white as in the case of adam and the fruit that should mankind force his way to the pole in the old forbidden secret biding there then some mishap should not fail to overtake the race of man that the white being kindly disposed to mankind did not wish this to occur and intended for the sake of the race to destroy our entire expedition before it reached and that the black knowing that the white meant to do this and by what means used me me to outwit this design first of all working that i should be one of the party of four to leave the ship on ski but the childish attempt my god to read the immense riddle of the world i could laugh loud at myself and at poor black and white scotland too the thing can't be so simple well we left tamar the same day and good-bye now to both land and open sea till we passed the latitude of cape chelyuskin which we did not sight it was one succession of ice belts with mew in the crow's nest tormenting the electric belt in the engine room the anchor hanging ready to drop and clark taking surroundings progress was slow and a polar night gathered round us apace as we stole still onward and onward into that blue and glimmering land of eternal floor 
We now left off bed coverings of reindeer skin and took to sleeping bags. Eight of the dogs had died by the 25th September, when we were experiencing 19 degrees of frost. In the darkest part of our night, the northern light spread its silent, solemn banner over us, quivering round the heavens in a million fickle gods. The relations between the members of our little crew were excellent, with one exception. David Wilson and I were not good friends. There was something, a tone, in the evidence which he had given at the inquest on Peters, which made me mad every time I thought of it. He had heard Peters admit just before death that he, Peters, had administered atropine to himself, and he had had to give evidence of that fact, but he had given it in a most half-hearted way, so much so that the coroner had asked him, "'What, sir, are you hiding from me?' Wilson, I replied, nothing, I have nothing to tell. And from that day he and I had hardly exchanged ten words, in spite of our constant companionship in the vessel. And one day, standing alone on a floe, I found myself hissing with clenched fist. If he dared suspect Clodagh of poisoning Peters, I could kill him. Up to seventy-eight degrees of latitude, the weather had been superb, but on the night of the 7th October, well i remember it we experienced a great storm our tub of a ship rolled like a swing drenching the whimpering dogs at every lurch and hurling everything on board into confusion the petroleum launch was washed from the davits down at one time to forty degrees below zero sank the thermometer while a high aurora was whiffed into a disheveled chaos of hues resembling the smeared palette of some turbulent painter of the skies, or mixed battle of long-robed seraphim, and looking the very symbol of tribulation, tempest, wreck, and distraction. I, for the first time, was sick. It was with a dizzy brain, therefore, that I went off watch to my bunk. Soon, indeed, I fell asleep, but the rolls and shocks of the ship, combined with the heavy Greenland anorak which I had on, and the state of my body, together produced a fearful nightmare, in which I was conscious of a vain struggle to move, a vain fight for breath, for the sleeping-bag turned to an iceberg on my bosom. Of Clodagh was my gasping dream. I dreamt that she let fall, drop by drop, a liquid, colored like pomegranate seeds, into a glass of water, and she presented the glass to Peters. The draught, I knew, was poisonous as death, and in a last effort to break the bands of that dark slumber, I was conscious, as I jerked myself upright, of screaming aloud, Clodagh, Clodagh, spare the man! My eyes, starting with horror, opened to waking. The electric light was shining in the cabin, and there stood David Wilson looking at me. Wilson was a big man, with a massively built, long face, made longer by a beard and he had little nervous contractions of the flesh at the cheekbones, and plenty of big freckles. His clinging pose, his smile of disgust, his whole air as he stood crouching and lurching there, ugh, I can shut my eyes and see now. What he was doing in my cabin I did not know. To think, my good God, that he should have been led there just then. This was one of the four men's starboard berths. His was a port, yet there he was, but he explained at once. Sorry to interrupt your innocent dreams, says he, 
the mercury in Maitland's thermometer is frozen, and he asked me to hand him his spirits of wine, one from his bunk. I did not answer. A hatred was in my heart against this man. The next day the storm died away, and either three or four days later the slush ice between the floes froze definitely. The Boreal's way was thus blocked. We warped her with ice anchors, and the capstan into the position in which she should lay up for her winter's drift. This was in about seventy-nine degrees, twenty minutes north. The sun had now totally vanished from our bleak sky, not to reappear till the following year. Well, there was sledging with the dogs and bear hunting among the hummocks, as the months one by one went by. One day Wilson, by far best shot, got a walrus bull. Clark followed the traditional pursuit of a chief, examining crustacea. Maitland and I were in a relation of close friendship, and I assisted his meteorological observations in a snow hut built near the ship. Often, through the twenty-four hours, a clear blue moon, very spectral, very fair, suffused all our dim and livid clime. It was five days before Christmas that Clark made the great announcement. He had determined, he said, if our splendid northward drift continued, to leave the ship about the middle of next March for the dash to the pole. He would take with him the four reindeer, all the dogs, four sledges, four kayaks, and three companions. The companions whom he had decided to invite were Wilson, Mew, and Maitland. He said it at dinner, and as he said it, David Wilson glanced at my wan face with a smile of pleased malice, for I was left out. I remember well, the aurora that night was in the sky, and at its edge floated a moon surrounded by a ring with two mock moons, but all shone very vaguely and far, and a fog which had already lasted some days made the ship's bows indistinct to me as i paced the bridge on my watch two hours after clark's announcement for a long time all was very still save for the occasional whine of a dog i was alone and it grew toward the end of my watch when maitland would succeed me my slow tread tolled like a passing bell and the mountainous ice lay vague and white around me its sheet of ghastliness not less dreadfully silent than eternity itself presently Several of the dogs began barking together, left off, and began again. I said to myself, There is a bear about somewhere. And after some five minutes I saw, I thought that I saw, it. The fog had, if anything, thickened, and it was now very near the end of my watch. It had entered the ship, I concluded, by the boards which slanted from an opening in the port bulwarks down to the ice. Once before, in November, a bear, having smelled the dogs, had ventured on board at midnight. But then there had resulted a perfect hubbub among the dogs. Now, even in the midst of my excitement, I wondered at their quietness, though some whimpered, with fear I thought. I saw the creature steal forward from the hatchway toward the kennels of port, and I ran noiselessly and seized the watch-gun which stood always loaded by the companionway. By this time the form had passed the kennels, reached the bows, and now was making toward me on the starboard side. I took aim. Never, I thought, had I seen so huge a bear, though I made allowance for the magnifying effect of the fog. My finger was on the trigger, and at that moment a deathly shivering sickness took me, 
and the wrangling voices shouted at me with shoot shoot not shoot ah well that latter shot was irresistible i drew the trigger the report hooted through the polar night the creature dropped both wilson and clark were up at once and we three hurried to the spot but the very first glance showed a singular kind of bear wilson put his hand to the head and a lax skin came away at his touch it was aubrey maitland who was underneath it and i had shot him dead for the past few days he had been cleaning skins among them the skin of the bear from which i had saved him at tamor now maitland was a born pantomimist continually inventing practical jokes and perhaps to startle me with a false alarm in the very skin of the old bruin which had so nearly done for him he had thrown it round him on finishing its cleaning and so in mere wanton fun had crept on deck at the hour of his watch the head of the bearskin and the fog must have prevented him from seeing me taking aim this tragedy made me ill for weeks i saw that the hand of fate was upon me when i rose from bed poor maitland was lying on the ice behind the great camel-shaped hummock near us by the end of january we had drifted to eighty degrees fifty-five minutes and it was then that clark in the presence of wilson asked me if i would make the fourth man in the place of poor maitland for the dash in the spring as i said yes i am willing david wilson spat with a disgusted emphasis a minute later he sighed with ah, poor maitland and drew in his breath with a god knows i had an impulse to spring then and there at his throat and strangle him but i curbed myself there remained now hardly a month before the dash and all hands set to work with a will measuring the dogs making harness and sealskin shoes for them overhauling sledges and kayaks and cutting every possible ounce of weight but we were not destined after all to set out that year about the twentieth february the ice began to pack and the ship was subjected to an appalling pressure we found it necessary to make trumpets of our hands to shout into one another's ears for the whole ice continent was crashing popping thundering everywhere in terrific upheaval expecting every moment to see the boreal crushed to splinters we had to set about unpacking provisions and placing sledges kayaks dogs and everything in a position for instant flight it lasted five days and was accompanied by a tempest from the north which by the end of february had driven us back south into latitude seventy nine degrees forty minutes clark of course then abandoned the thought of the pole for that summer and immediately afterwards we made a startling discovery our stock of reindeer moss was found to be somehow ridiculously small egan our second mate was blamed but that did not help matters the sad fact remained clark was advised to kill one or two of the deer but he pig-headedly refused and by the beginning of summer they were all dead well our northward drift recommenced toward the middle of february we saw a mirage of the coming sun above the horizon there were flights of arctic petrels and snow buntings and spring was with us in an ice pack of big hummocks and narrow lanes we made good progress all the summer when the last of the deer died my heart sank and when the dogs killed two of their number and a bear crushed a third 
i was fully expecting what actually came it was this clark announced that he could now take only two companions with him in the spring and they were wilson and mew so once more i saw david wilson's pleased smile of malice we settled into our second winter quarters again came december and all our drear sunless gloom made worse by the fact that the windmill would not work leaving us without the electric light ah me none but those who have felt it could dream of one half the mental depression of that long arctic night how the soul takes on the hue of the world and without and within is nothing but gloom gloom and the reign of the power of darkness not one of us but was in a melancholic dismal and dire mood and on the thirteenth december lamburn the engineer stabbed cartwright the old harpooner in the arm three days before christmas a bear came close to the ship and then turned tail mew wilson i and meredith a general hand set out in pursuit after a pretty long chase we lost him and then scattered different ways it was very dim and after yet an hour's search i was returning weary and disgusted to the ship when i saw some shadow like a bear sailing away on my left and at the same time sighted a man i did not know whom running like a handicapped ghost some little distance to the right so i shouted out there he is come on this way the man quickly joined me but as soon as ever he recognized me stopped dead the devil must have suddenly got into him for he said no thanks jeffson alone with you i am in danger of my life it was wilson and i too forgetting at once all about the bear stopped and faced him i see said i but wilson you are going to explain to me now what you mean you hear what do you mean wilson what i say he answered deliberately eyeing me up and down alone with you i am in danger of my life just as poor maitland was and just as poor peters was certainly you are a deadly beast fury leapt my god in my heart black as the tenebrous arctic night was my soul do you mean said i that i want to put you out of the way in order to go in your place to the pole is that your meaning man that's about my meaning jeffson says he you are a deadly beast you know stop i said with blazing eye i'm going to kill you wilson as sure as god lives but i want to hear first who told you that i killed peters your lover killed him with your collusion why well, i heard you man in your beastly sleep calling the whole thing out and i was pretty sure of it before only i had no proofs by god i should enjoy putting a bullet into you jeffson you wrong me you you wrong me i shrieked my eyes staring with ravenous lust for his blood and now i'm going to pay you well for it look out you i aimed my gun for his heart and i touched the trigger he held up his left hand stop he said stop he was one of the coolest of men ordinarily there is no gallows on the boreal but clark could easily rig one for you i want to kill you too because there are no criminal courts up here it would be doing a good action for my country but not here not now listen to me don't shoot later we can meet when all is ready so that no one may be the wiser and fight it all out as he spoke i let the gun drop it was better so i knew he was much the best shot on the ship 
and I an indifferent one, but I did not care. I did not care if I was killed. It is a dim, inclement land, God knows, and the spirit of darkness and distraction is there. Twenty hours later we met behind the great saddle-shaped hummock, some six miles to the southeast of the ship. We had set out at different times so that no one might suspect, and each brought a ship's lantern. Wilson had dug an ice grave near the hummock, leaving at its edge a heap of brash ice and snow to fill in. We stood separated by an interval of perhaps seventy yards, the grave between us, each with a lantern at his feet. Even so, we were mere shadowy apparitions one to the other. The air glowered very drearily, and present in my inmost soul were the frills of cold. A chill moon, a mere abstraction of light, seemed to hang far outside the universe. The temperature was at fifty-five degrees below zero so that we had on wind clothes over our anoraks and heavy foot bandages under our lap boots nothing but a weird morgue seemed the world haunted with despondent madness and exactly like that world about us were the minds of us two poor men full of macabre bleak and funereal feelings between us yawned an early grave for one or other of our bodies i heard wilson cry out are you ready jeffson Ay, Wilson, I cried. Then here goes, cries he. Even as he spoke, he fired. Surely the man was in deadly earnest to kill me. But his shot passed harmlessly by me, as indeed was only likely. We were mere shadows one to the other. I fired perhaps ten seconds later than he, but in those ten seconds he stood perfectly revealed to me in clear lavender light. An arctic fireball had traversed the sky, showering abroad a sulfurous glamour over the snow landscape before the intenser blue of its momentary shine had passed away i saw wilson stagger forward and drop and him and his lantern i buried deep there under the rubble ice End of section three